This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. I am your host, Lorez, and today we are going to be discussing Jody Hill's third film, The Legacy of a Whitetail Deer Hunter. Hi, I'm Buck Ferguson. Tonight's episode isn't just about killing whitetail deer. It's also about family. Hey, Buck. I'll go get him. Make yourself at home. Make myself at home. How you doing, son? Ready to go kill your first whitetail deer? All right, Don, you ready to work now? We're ready. We're rolling. You know, Don, this will be the greatest video we've ever made. So it is currently 10.15 in the morning, October 2nd, and I am racing to get this podcast out because I fell behind on the recording schedule to make way for my short, sweet Vice Viceland documentary that is currently on YouTube right now. It's on Facebook. Viceland, the worst network on television. You can check that out right now. And maybe if you head over to Lorez Live, I will have something there for you. You take a look at anything scripted that comes out through a mainstream platform like television or the cinema, and nine out of ten times, what you're going to see is not going to be that different from anything else you got about 10, 15 years ago, which is rather unfortunate since, as we all know, comedy has perhaps the shortest shelf life of any kind of artistic medium. I saw a trailer on the Twitter recently from Ike Barinholtz, who I thought was actually tying it into Jody Hill, Danny McBride, and this whole crew from Roughhouse Pictures. Uh, Ike Barinholtz had a small role on Eastbound and Down Season 3 or 4, I believe. And I saw a trailer on the Twitter today of some movie that he, I believe, wrote, directed, and stars in. And, you know, you, you come across certain people in your life and they spend a whole lot of their time specifically flexing for Twitter. And the people of Twitter who they think generate the, the vast majority of individuals in the United States. And Ike Barinholtz is clearly one of these individuals who thinks that Twitter represents reality. And I don't know the name of his movie. I'm going to take a quick look right now, but it has Tiffany Haddish in it as his wife. And it's kind of like Bizarro Roseanne Episode 1. I don't know if you guys saw Roseanne Episode 1 where Aunt Jackie comes home and she's a Hillary supporter and Trump's a, or Roseanne is a Trump supporter and they're clashing and they have all kinds of differences. It has that same kind of setup to it, uh, but it is told from the uh, logical, angry perspective here, quote-unquote, from Ike Barinholtz, who is clearly far left at this point. Ike Barinholtz, bad movie. Google. The Oath. Okay, perfect. This is the first thing to come up. This is what I was talking about. The Oath. Six days ago, film review in Variety, I don't know how this is faring currently. I don't know what the reviews are for it. Uh, It says, Ike Barinholtz, best known for Mad TV. Not a good sign when your top credit is Mad TV. Uh, Turns his comedic knives on our divisive political climate in this daring black comedy. And I have a picture of Tiffany Haddish here. I don't know. I think think the author of this article needs to be canceled. That's kind of risque, you know? So I, I, I have no intention of seeing this movie. Uh... But just to bring it back around, I don't, I, you know, this is what constitutes mainstream comedy right now. This is what, uh, I guess, theaters 
think that people are into. I believe Blumhouse is actually behind this The Oath, which is kind of frightening, but I mean, not really, if you take a look at the Purge series. Um, and I, I feel like we've reached a point where, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, everybody's just tired of this neoliberal horseshit that, that, that gets thrown out into the public. But I mean, maybe not. Maybe it's going to be a big hit. Maybe it's going to be the new Dark Knight. I don't know. We'll find out. And, uh, you know, that is The Oath, our sponsor today, The Oath. Um, so something I want to do with more episodes going forward is have a guest talking to me about whatever movie it is that we happen to be analyzing. I think the last episode was not only a smoother run, but it also happened to be a fairly popular episode of the three released thus far. And that's something I'm going to plan to do. This week's episode was actually supposed to be about Spider-Man 3. And we're going to do Spider-Man 3 and Venom back-to-back. And that was going to be with Hans, my my Costa Rican sidekick. Hans is this older man from, from the jungles of Costa Rica who is deported from three countries, three Western countries. And, uh, you know, he's very scorned, quite the nihilist, that Hans. He, you know, I was very curious to see what his take on Spider-Man 3 would be. He watched it. I did not watch it because our, our, you know, everything kind of blew up. But from what he told me, Spider-Man 3 is not as bad as we all remember. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's a trustworthy opinion. I don't know. I, I, you know, I haven't watched that movie since about 2008, 2009. So I'm going to dive back into that. And at some point, we will touch upon that episode along with Venom, which is getting kind of scary reviews. Uh, they're talking about it in the same vein as Catwoman. The Holly Berry film from 2005, I believe, Catwoman, so yikes. But how about we finally get on the subject of the show, the legacy of a white-tail deer hunter. How about you, Dad? You got a girlfriend? New buck. <laughs> the only tail your dad is chasing is whitetail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe you should start dating again. No, 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 I'm all right as is, Jaden. I'm doing just fine. Just saying, probably be good for you. Seems like Mom is moving on. Her and Greg are even talking about getting married. But they're talking about what? He hadn't officially asked her yet, but she knows it's coming. They talk about it all the time. It's ridiculous. On the ink on the divorce barely even dry. Well, I mean, it has been two years, Buck, though, you know. What are you, a human calendar? Mr. Trapper Keeper? I know how long it's been. God. I hate selfish people. I'll give it to him, though. Greg told me some of the ideas he had for when he was going to propose. Man, that dude has a great imagination. The Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter is Jody Hill's third film and first to be released in nine years. It marks his first feature on the big screen, if you can call Netflix the big screen, since the underrated critical and financial bomb Observe and Report, a movie you can currently find on the $1 DVD rack of almost any 7-Eleven. Hill's depiction of characters and which kinds of characters he chooses to highlight as his protagonist has become a signature of his work. And you know, this began with his directorial debut, The Foot Fist Way, released in 2006 by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay through their nubile company at the time, Gary Sanchez Productions. And break. Face your partner. Kungnay. Shake hands. The film is centered around Fred Simmons, a down-on-his-luck karate instructor with an enormous ego played by Danny McBride, and I believe this was his first real role. McBride plays Simmons and, you know, he, you know, this character, he lives a miserable life. 
You know, he lacks in friends above the age of 15, and he's married to a woman who is consistently cheating on him. It's terrible, you know? Real tragedy. Side note, the actress who plays McBride's wife in this film is fucking atrocious. Oh my god, her acting is so painful to watch, and I can't tell if that was deliberate or not. It looks like they just cast a porn star for this movie. I don't know, but if if you go back and you, you, you sit down and you watch The Foot Fist Way, even though a lot of the movie is shot kind of amateurly, the acting otherwise is more than okay, except for her. She will stick out like a sore thumb, and if you if you just take it that this was probably intentional, like an inside joke among uh, the guys who were running the show with that film, then it's not going to ruin the movie at all for you. But uh, anyway, I, I, I got caught up in, in this particular minute aspect. Fred Simmons... The character, the protagonist of The Footfist Way, he finally catches a break when meeting one of his idols, martial artist Chuck the Truck Wallace, played by Ben Best, and he manages to book Wallace for an engagement at his studio. However, this meeting is not what Simmons expects, and things only dissipate from there. Now, in spite of matters getting worse for our lead in this film and facing utter humiliation on a number of different occasions, he comes out on top. Fred Simmons, you know, feeling dejected by his previous encounters with Chuck the Truck Wallace, challenges Wallace to a board-breaking competition and wins. Then Simmons' wife, Susie, this terrible actress, uh, pleads to him to forgive her and take her back in spite of giving men hand jobs. But Simmons instead chooses to piss on his wedding ring. So Simmons, who has been portrayed as a loser for nearly 80 minutes of the film, overcomes his, his obstacles and succeeds in his goals, and has delivered the petty victories that he so desires. This character archetype and trajectory is found in both of Hill's films to predate Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter, and the two series that he had worked on for HBO, Eastbound and Down, and Vice Principals. The leads in each of these four stories are just as downtrodden, just as self-centered, and just as embarrassing to watch. But they always win. Now, contrast this against the popular human comedies of the late aughts and the early 2010s, and you will see a stark difference in the message that is being sent to the viewer. Films like the Duplass Brothers' Jeff Who Lives at Home, or Hesher, or Young Adult, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Drinking Buddies, all very good films that send a similar signal, that it is okay to lose. You have flaws, and sometimes, even if you're a good person at heart, those flaws will cost you opportunities and that's okay. A softened, cookie-dough take inspired by the far more impactful Bad News Bears ending of the 70s. Unlike those modern comedies, when the Bad News Bears lost, they lost. That was it. They weren't granted a small post-ending victory, unlike many of the films mentioned. When they were and had the opportunity to make peace with their enemy, they rejected it to protect their pride, something that many of the late Gen Xer characters of these recent films lacked. Because of this and Hill's crass humor, his films have failed to connect with critics. I want anything less in the whole wide world than a cup of your coffee, so no thank you. Okay, you know, on second thought, maybe I'll, I'll yeah, sure, I'll have a cup of coffee. Staring down at the tomato meter right now, The Foot Fist Way is still his highest ranked movie at 54%, and it is all downhill from there. The legacy of a white-tailed deer hunter, however, subverts what we've come to know of Hill. 
I find trouble calling it a genuine comedy as the humor is not necessarily as paramount to the movie as the relationship between Josh Brolin's character Buck, a professional outdoorsman, and his estranged son Jaden. The two, along with Buck's affable, cuckold sidekick Don, played by Danny McBride, embark on a hunting trip that is doubly intended to be a shoot for Buck's latest DVD tutorial, in which he hunts a whitetail deer. You know what? You've crossed the line, mister. Oh, have I? You, you, you want to know the real reason why I'm retiring, Buck? Oh, please, don't, don't tell me about your stupid dream of watching TV. No, it has nothing to do with television. The real reason is because you're an asshole, and I'm sick and tired of traipsing around these forests, and for what? For nothing. To lose a goddamn big toe, that's all. You don't care about anybody. You don't give a shit about me, and you never gave a shit about Jaden until his mom left you. As expected, Danny McBride delivers laughs, especially compared to the stoic lead of the film, though he falls short of the young Montana Jordan, who often outshines Brolin and McBride in offering some of the funniest moments of the film. Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter is not the usual hill fare in that the main character of our journey is an arrogant fool, though some of those traits of that archetype are carried over, but rather a man who has been replaced and feels a lack of purpose in this world. Scoot McNary plays Brolin's ex-wife's husband, Greg. Greg, who is Jaden's stepfather, is a nebbish, slightly younger man who is both physically and in terms of personality the exact opposite of Brolin's Buck. It is clear what Hill is trying to communicate through these characters and the traits that Buck's son has picked up as a result of time spent with Greg. However, a strong performance from Brolin prevents it from being hackneyed. The Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter is a significantly warmer film compared to Hill's earlier works. It's also his first film that doesn't have a clear resolve by the end of it. While Brolin's buck sets out and seemingly accomplishes what he aims to do, and we're led to believe that his relationship with his son has been strengthened as a result of this trip, the future at best seems uncertain. Now, there is the matter at hand that this is a Netflix film, and at times it certainly feels like it. The production of the movie, which to begin with was handled with a low budget, was troubled. The Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter was shot in 2015 and sat on the shelf for three years before premiering at South by Southwest in March. Anytime a movie takes more than two years to come out while in post, it usually spells bad news. Comparatively, you can look at the, uh, the Billionaire Boys Club, I believe the title is, which starred that kid from Baby Driver and uh, the other kid from Kingsman and has Kevin Spacey in it. And they couldn't have released that movie at a worse time. And, you know, it's been completely buried. If you if you Google that movie right now, you're going to see a really cheap, like, made-for-DVD poster where they basically just take the Wolf of Wall Street font and template and, you know, they're passing it off like one of these asylum films that comes out on the Sci-Fi Channel whenever there's a big horror movie or science fiction blockbuster like I Am Legend, I Am Omega. Okay, we got it. Billionaire Boys Club looks like that to Wolf of Wall Street, but I've seen clips from that movie and it looks decent enough. It, it's kind of strange. It's just been entirely buried because of the Kevin Spacey incident, uh, though they certainly took their time trying to get that movie out before then. Anyhow, wandering from the point once more. It is unfortunately apparent in the final product that this movie had issues and perhaps had some kind of Netflix interfering, as the movie's script and pacing can easily be described as feeling like a first draft. 
But there is something to this concept, these characters, and this outdated model of making money that Buck desires, but it never really comes together. While I am personally glad that Jody Hill has weaseled his way out of director jail after Observe and Report landed with a thud, I can't help but wonder if the lack of buzz surrounding this outing will push him back into it. If you take a look at one of his peers, David Gordon Green, who has worked with Jody Hill on numerous occasions and uh, co-runs the Rough House production company, he kind of went through a similar trajectory where his career was really starting to take off, and then he did a couple of blockbuster movies, uh, The Sitter being one of them, starring Jonah Hill, and that was a complete and utter bomb, and it was unamusing to... Anybody who isn't a $500 million plus net worth executive, it was terrible. And so his career kind of fell to the wayside for a moment. Although both he and Hill had the opportunity to work on these HBO shows, Vice Principals and Eastbound and Down during that time. So they were keeping busy, sharpening their tools. And Jody Hill seems to be a director that maybe is more cut out for television as opposed to feature films. There, I'm not trying to criticize his films here, but there does seem to be something lacking with each movie, and it's difficult to tell if that is intentional or not. Okay, fellas, my apologies here, but there may be a change in the audio quality for the rest of this podcast. I could be wrong about that. If that's the case, then I will wind up cutting this, but I have to run, so I don't have my... I, I won't be recording from my studio. I'll be going remote from Long Island. How about that? And we are back, and I have no idea if this is going to be decent audio or terrible audio or if there's going to be a lot of reverb because I happen to be recording on a Zoom H1 right now, and I'm not even using my shotgun mic, my trusty roadie shotgun mic, which I have uh, utilized for a number of shoots in the past, but uh, I, I tried using it today and the alkaline battery has shit the bed, the 9-volt alkaline battery. So I am recording it without it, and as a result of that, you're probably going to notice a, a complete difference in how this sounds compared to the earlier audio of this particular episode. And for that, I do apologize, okay? This is not going to be the normal thing. I just so happen to be in Long Island for the week, away from my studio, so this is what is going to suffice for the time being until I can get a new alkaline battery. So I, I said more or less everything that I had intended to say. It's a small movie, doesn't really entail too much, and it's good enough for what it is. And I wanted to actually divert the conversation over to something that I think is becoming a real problem with Netflix in general because, as I mentioned before, this movie was released directly to Netflix and I have watched other movies that have come out this year, other comedies, such as uh, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which is the origin of Cracked Magazine. And that was another movie that was just kind of okay. Uh, where it had its funny moments and it had talent both in front of and behind the camera. I believe David Wayne of Stella and uh, The State had directed that movie, and he's a funny guy. He puts out good work. And then I watched another movie recently called The Land of Steady Habits, which starred 
One of my favorite actors that is currently working, Ben Mendelsohn, and also had Thomas Mann in it. And there was another movie that was just kind of okay. It seems like there's some kind of filter when it comes to the Netflix releases. And now this goes for their programming as well, their television shows. And this was not the case before. When you watched the first season of a show like, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, Orange is the New Black. You, you know, say what you want about that series, and, you know, there's definitely grading points to it in general that both involve and do not involve Jason Biggs. But that show was, in contrast to where it's at now, far better than uh, what has become of it. The first two seasons of Orange is the New Black were highly watchable. You know, not really my cup of tea as far as humor went, but it, you know, it, it satisfied my brain in that manner. And as it went on, I think we can all agree, obviously not the case. And you can look at Netflix's general slate, and regardless of the genre that those things fall into, that tends to be the case more often than not. Uh, Stranger Things, season two and season one. I watched the first couple of episodes of Stranger Things season one, and I was like, ah, you know what? I don't, I don't get the, the love and adoration for the show. And then I got to like episode three or four, and I was like, oh, okay, I got to finish the show today, and I marathoned it. Season two comes around, mm -mm. did not live up to the first season, of course. Few things do. Well, that's not true. Actually, the first season of many shows suck. The first movie in a franchise is what I was thinking, but. Uh, Stranger Things Season 2 seemed much more aware of what it was as a commercial vehicle. Like, there was an episode that felt entirely separate of the actual season itself. And, you know, it was very clear that they were just setting up Season 3 or Season 4. It was like that opening to The Walking Dead where we meet that character through Rick Grimes, and then he doesn't show up for four or five years into the actual series. And, you know, terrible. Um, and Netflix has really just been, like, eroding any kind of creativity from their platform. They, they have definitely gone with more of a quantity over quantity, uh, quality approach, where, you know, you take a look at Netflix now, uh, and the movies that are getting recommended to you, and it'll be like, well, here's... Here's a hundred films from Bollywood, and that'll be what they offer you as opposed to anything that fits within your taste. And, you know, the general Midwestern consumer is getting this, and they haven't, you know, they haven't even seen Indian people before, let alone Bollywood films. No, and, and you know, I think, I think the way that we're heading is that you're going to see these companies just coming up with their apps. And, I've, you know, I've talked about this before in a video essay or two. But, you know, you take a look at CBS or DC Comics and they're already offering these services that are entirely their own shit, right? Excuse the language. It doesn't make much sense for a company like Disney to be putting their movies on a streaming platform as general as Netflix when they can just come up with their own thing that people can pay the same amount of money for and they can claim 100% of the profit of. Plus their library of TV shows, of movies, cartoons, shorts is big enough to be able to do that. Obviously, there are many other companies that are out there that aren't gonna be able to create that kind of app and have that kind of success that Disney might have. But what history has shown us, people and entities tend to evolve to whatever climate fits the era. And you know, you may just see 
a, a, a brand new app from GE where you can order a washing machine and then watch a reality TV show with Chip and Joanne Gaines uh, fixing the washing machine. That is the future that we are in for here. And I don't know if that's a good thing or if it's a bad thing. Because on one hand, you will be able to tailor whatever content you're putting out to a specific audience. But when it does come to these more general uh, uh, corporations like, uh, I suppose, Netflix is the obvious example here as I've been talking about it. But also maybe, you know, you can fit Hulu into there or uh, go a little broader and talk about studios like Warner Brothers. If Warner Brothers were to come up with an app that would exclusively feature their films and television shows, and they started doing the Netflix thing where they put out exclusive content through that, and they got really big stars to be involved in that, I think you would see a decline of what kind of movies Warner Brothers puts out. And Warner Brothers as a whole is, for me anyway, a trusted company. If Warner Brothers is putting a movie out, it's probably going to be a notch above whatever Fox is putting out this year. Uh, that may just be my personal taste or opinion, but I think if you were to match up the uh, annual slate of films that each of those studios offered, I may have a point here. If you were to see that happen, then I think they would either dumb down the content or start filing off the edges of it uh, to meet whatever the so-called general consumer, the, the, the average individual of you know, lacking taste, a, a one of these NPCs, if you will, would be into. Because you take a look at what's popular on Netflix, and it's like, people are still watching The Office 10 years after the fact it ended. Like, it wasn't even an amusing show when it was on the air. And I'm sorry if you feel that way, but you're wrong. You know, you can't watch The American Office and appreciate it if you watch the Ricky Gervais BBC Office that came out in 2000. It, there's just, there's no comparing the two. It's not a matter of pretension. It's, this is a stupid fucking show that they, I, anyway, I'm not going to get caught up on The Office here. My point is, corporations have a low opinion of people. And having a low opinion of people and their taste leads to a more steady flow of money. And I think that has something to do with the change in content that we've seen on Netflix. And unfortunately, the legacy of a white-tailed deer hunter looks like it kind of went through that quality test where, you know, there are definitely some uh some uh, you know, risque jokes in the movie, but on the whole they just seem to be doing something that doesn't, that makes their movies not match movies that come out into theaters. Any, like, and that wasn't always the case. If you look at Beast of No Nation, Cary Fukunaga's film that he released directly to Netflix, it might have been the first movie that went straight to Netflix and skipped out on theaters, even though I think it had a, a two-week run in theaters to become uh, eligible for the Oscars. One of the best movies to have come out in 2015. That is a full, complete movie. And it's probably the best movie that Netflix has released and will ever release. Every other movie they've put out feels like it has the texture of cookie dough. You know, it doesn't feel completed. It feels kind of rushed. And it doesn't have the dimensions to it that you would hope to see in a feature film. That is the case with The Legacy of the White-Tailed Deer Hunter. Okay, my boys, it is that time again. 
the end of the show is nigh. If you want to help this program grow, head on over to Patreon.com and toss me a buck or more. I am going to be creating Patreon-exclusive episodes. I am working on one right now for the film Blue Ruin, which stars Macon Blair and was directed by Jeremy Saulnier. And I do have an interview with the star of the movie, Macon Blair, who has gone on to direct films and star in other movies like Green Room. I talked to Macon a couple of years back. It's a decent enough interview. I have him on a landline. And uh, it's kind of short. It's only about 18, 20 minutes long. But uh, it was good to be able to set aside a couple of minutes of the day to talk to Macon. And I will be including that in the next episode. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to release that at any point to iTunes. We shall see. I know that Jeremy Saulnier has a new movie out that is direct to Netflix. And uh, let me tell you, if it suffers from the same problems as this Jody Hill fare, then... These are grim times, I'll, t- I'll say that. Um, again, if you want to help out and ensure the growth of this program and the lowers.live platform, the official website where all of the media that I have produced over the past two years will be hosted, go to patreon.com slash Trust me, any amount of money at all helps, okay? Even if you're, if you're poor as shit and you can't afford a goddamn thing and you can just give $1 for one month, I promise you that $1 will be utilized in a productive way. I'm not pocketing any of this money. It is entirely there to help this whole operation become self-sufficient on its own. Once that happens, then I don't have to worry about paying out of pocket to do these podcasts or videos, and I can spend more time doing that, which is only a good thing in my book, and I would hope it would be a good thing in your book. So again, patreon.com slash lowres, or if you want to get some content right now for free, Head on over to lowres.live. Next week, we're supposed to have Hans in to talk about either A Quiet Place or Spider-Man 3. We'll see if he can do it. I don't know. He's been very flaky lately. But at the very least, I will I will be here, okay? So, fear not. Brand new episode coming up next mm, Tuesday. I almost forgot about the day. All right, thank you again for listening, and until then... <laughs>